Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's my privilege today to have Dr. Mark David Hall on the broadcast. He's no stranger to In Context. He's come on a number of times, and he has a new book, which we'll talk about in a moment. But if you don't know Mark David Hall, he is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University, also a senior fellow for the Center of Religion, Culture, and Democracy, Associated Faculty at the Center and Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. He's a senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for the Studies of Religion. And currently, he's a Garwood Visiting Fellow at Princeton University in the James Madison Program for a Visiting Scholar at the, I'm going to mispronounce this, Mark David, tell me how to pronounce it, Mercatus? Mercatus. Mercatus Center. He got his BA from Wheaton College, PhD in government from the University of Virginia. That's no small accomplishment. He's written, edited, co-edited dozens of books, including Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. And we've interviewed Mark David on that. But we've got a new book called Proclaim. What? That is the new book that we're talking <laughs> Read your notes easily. Read your notes that we're talking about today. So Mark's going to straighten us out on CRT and Black Lives Matter and Christian nationalism and all sorts of good stuff. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my privilege. We'll love having you. First of all, let's start out with some benchmarks for our friends. Let's talk about Christian nationalism and some of the things that you have already tried to engage before we tee up your new book. Because I think, Mark, a lot of Christians don't understand some of these issues that are happening, not only in the culture, but within the local church. Sure. Well, let me begin with just a short little story. So on January 6, 2021, I was flying home from a speaking engagement, stopped over in a layover in Dallas, and I got a, a note from a reporter. Would you comment on the Christian symbols among the riders at the U.S. Capitol building? And I, oh my goodness, this was the first I heard of it. And I said, of course I will. It took her about 20 minutes to send me anything, so I scrolled through all the footage I could, and I saw a sea of American flags, a sea of MAGA hats, a sea of Trump flags, and no Christian images. Well, eventually, a couple of um, photographs came my way. Two of them were literally 1.5 miles from the riots. They were from around the Washington Monument, where there had earlier been that day a prayer rally and that sort of thing. There were then two images from the actual rioters. One is a Pine State flag, that revolutionary era flag that has the words in appeal to heaven, which could be, of course, from judges, but it could also be from John Locke's second treatise. And the flag might be there just simply because it's a revolutionary era flag. And then a crazy goth-looking guy holding a Bible. And I've been a church-going creature my whole life, and I've never seen anyone like that in an evangelical church. <laughs> and so I cautioned the reporter. I said, you might want to be careful with this narrative that you're obviously crafting. She completely ignored my caution. And the next day, her story came out, as did so many other stories. Christian nationalists have attacked the U.S. Capitol building. And so this piqued my interest. I started reading everything I could find in Christian nationalism. The first thing we need to know is no one before 2022 was calling himself or herself a Christian nationalist. Mm -hmm. No one was saying, I am a Christian nationalist. We should be in favor of Christian nationalism. The phrase was more or less invented in 2006, and it has been used by critics ever since then to describe a bunch of theocrats who want to take over America for Christ and oppress women and racial minorities and attack other countries. You know, it's just a toxic mix that no one should want to embrace. And yet, where are these people? 
you know, I'm sure there's some people in, in rural Alabama who might embrace views somewhat like that. Well, I start reading some of the more academic literature, and lo and behold, it turns out that 51.9% of Americans are fully or partially in favor of this toxic mix of Christian nationalism. And so this just really um, got me curious, and I started diving into this literature even more, and I just determined that almost all of it is ridiculous. It's nonsensical. It's people making things up. Many of the authors are outright polemicists, right? Mm -hmm. People from the Freedom From Religion Foundation and that sort of thing. But even the scholars, I think, are profoundly biased. So, of course, with all this bad press about Christian nationalism, in 2022, for the first time, Marjorie Taylor Greene comes out and says, oh, I'm a Christian nationalist. You have a couple of books published advocating for Christian nationalism. So there are some people out there claiming the label, but I would say it's just a sort of ridiculous label. It's a slur. It's aimed at shaming Christians who desire to bring their faith into the public square to argue for conservative ends, ending abortion, religious liberty, and things of that nature. Well, let's jump into your text, because I read through the contents, as I often do, and then I jump around in any text, go, where is this guy going? You start out with the Puritans were not tyrannical theocrats. And I had to stop and ask myself, who even thought they were? <laughs> because you gave a great introduction. You said 51% of Americans were in favor of some form of this iteration of Christian nationalism? This is a claim that is made by two sociologists, Whitehead and Berry. Got it. May have fully or partially supportive of this toxic stew. Got it. And I think the claim is just ridiculous. The way they attempt to make Christian nationalism is ridiculous. Okay. So we segue then. Some of these folks, I'm guessing, would point to the Puritans and go, see, this is where it started. Is that where we're going? Yeah. No, I think that's right. Yeah, if by a theocrat you mean civic leaders that are looking to the Bible— and are attempting to form laws based on the Bible. Well, of course, the Puritans are a great example of that, right? For both good and ill. As I explain in my book, there are hundreds of crimes you could be punished with for by death in England. They eliminated almost all of those death penalty crimes. You could be punished for stealing a few shillings, and instead the Puritans looking at the Bible said restitution is the appropriate penalty mm -hmm. for theft. And so if I steal your cow, I, I give it back plus a cow, right? far more humane than putting someone to death. On the other hand, they did identify 17 crimes in the Old Testament for which one could be put to death. Adultery, witchcraft, incorrigible juvenile delinquency. And so they wrote these into their criminal codes. And so when you read through that, you might say, oh my goodness, this does sound horrible. On the other hand, we'll look at how these societies actually ran. Only three people throughout all of New England's history were put to death for adultery. So although it was punishable by death, that penalty was rarely used. Although you could be put to death if you're an incorrigible juvenile delinquent, we don't have any records of anyone being put to death for that for that offense. When we think about the Puritans, I remember reading a book by Leland Reichen, oh gosh, 20 years ago, the way they really were. Mm -hmm. And it was such an extraordinary text because we talk about Puritanical and Victorian with these pejorative you know, ideologies. These were people that were, they were pretty hard scrapple trying to live a righteous life. No, that's exactly right. A very laudable people in many ways. You have virtual universal male literacy. Female literacy rates are on the rise. You have the most Republican instant political institutions the world had ever seen, that small r Republican. You have almost every right that is today protected in the Bill of Rights in the Massachusetts body of liberty. So a very, very nice place to live. No, it's true. They banned Quakers. They banned Catholics. 
This mm-hmm. sort of thing is going on all over the Western world. Catholic countries banned Protestants. Jews had been expelled from England in like the 13th century. And I'm not defending that. I'm just saying that some of these things that seem heavy-handed to us today were absolutely you know, commonplace in that era. And what was uncommon about the Puritans was how progressive they were in the best sense of the word. To get to your initial question, I think one reason people have this bad view of the Puritans is they've read the Scarlet Letter, they read Arthur Miller's mm-hmm. The Crucible, and you come away from works like that, plus what you see in your average American history text for either high school or college, and it does not paint a flattering picture. On the other hand, if you read Reichen, if you read David D. Hall of Harvard Divinity School, if you read Michael Winship, you have plenty of scholars who are arguing that, in fact, these are very, very humane societies, very um, advanced in terms of protecting the rights of all citizens. Now, wait, you said they teach history in high school still? To the extent to it, they teach history. <laughs> Sorry, that was low-hanging fruit. I want to jump ahead to America's founders in slavery, because this chapter, I think, is so important. We just saw the last couple of days this California effort to uh, create this unconscionable number of dollar reparations. And even Gavin Newsom saw it as a bridge too far. But what was it, three times the annual budget of California that was at least going to be? And then, of course, we were talking, my wife and I, about can you imagine giving, let's just say the low number, $1.2 million to a person that doesn't know how to manage money? That maybe, you know, never went to college or has a basic finance, you know, save and how to balance a checkbook kind of things and give them that kind of money, what that would do to their life. But anyway, let's talk about this America's founding and slavery, because you write what a lot of us learned when we were in school, but it's certainly not what's being taught today. No, thank you. Yeah. One of the inspirations for this book, it has a couple of chapters that were going to be a sequel to Did America Have a Christian Founding? In between that book and this one, the New York Times 1619 Project came out. And this project, which was a series of essays, was highly regarded, won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's now making its way into schools. So when children are studying history, this is the sort of thing they're studying. And they want to redefine all of American history in light of slavery and racism. The original iteration of this project actually said we should replace 1776 with 1619 as our nation's birthday. And it's just, it's it's woefully bad history. It's been rejected by a number of of left-of-center historians, and I thought I would throw in my two cents. And so one of the key things I do is defend the American founders who are routinely called hypocrites for writing these wonderful words in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but then owning slaves. And I try to complicate that claim. Mm. It is, uh, of course, the case that some of them did own slaves. However, every founder is critical of the institution of slavery, even those who own slaves, like a Thomas Jefferson, a George Washington, a Patrick Henry, a James Madison. Some of those who owned slaves came to recognize it was an evil practice, and so they voluntarily freed their slaves. I'm thinking here of people like Ben Franklin, John Jay, John Dickinson, James Wilson. John Dickinson at one point was the largest slave owner in all of Delaware, and he voluntarily freed his slaves. And then, of course, you have plenty of founders who never owned an enslaved person, people like John Adams, Roger Sherman, and many, many others. Now, so first of all, that kind of complicates the picture a little bit with respect to the founders. And then I point out that these individuals took a number of concrete steps to end slavery. Eight states voluntarily abolished slavery, between 1776 and 1804, abolished it or put on the road to extinction. 
the Confederation Congress and then the first federal Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance that prohibited the expansion of slavery into the old Northwest, that area that became Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois. And so they're taking a number of steps to end this practice. Again, no one defended it as a good thing in the American founding era. In your chapter, you talk about Mark Galley, and that's been a fascinating thing to watch, the the change in Christianity today. A friend of mine says it's neither. <laughs> but anyway, the liberalization of ideologies, and it wasn't just 1619, it's this shift we've seen, Dr. Hall, that it just continues to push, push, push away from you know, what we're Far from perfect, but pretty good foundations. Now, in your chapter, what I appreciate about you talk about the Bible's view of slavery. Again, for our listeners, give them a sampling of like, you know, if I indenture myself to someone who's wealthy because I'm poor, some of the relationships weren't always abusive and punitive. And we even have stories in the Old Testament where a person who's free willingly puts his ear on the doorpost, you know, has an all put through it, and he's saying, no, I love my master. I would say it's like a ranch hand, right? I get to live here. I get good work. Where would I go? So help us not dispel, but understand some of what slavery is and is not in the Bible. Sure. Well, thank you for that question. I hesitate to um, teach the Bible to you as I've learned the Bible from you. Still, <laughs> so very long. We just want as Christians today to say the Bible clearly, obviously, and unequivocally condemns slavery. However, this is a problematic argument. It's a difficult argument. The Old Testament seems to permit slavery in certain circumstances. Now, it puts dramatic limits on slavery, but it seems to permit it. Even when we go to the New Testament, right? You have the Apostle Paul telling slaves to obey their masters. The Apostle Paul sends Anisimus, an escaped slave, back to his master, Philemon. And there's a strong hint that Philemon should free Anisimus, but he's not ordered to do so by the Apostle Paul. And so slavery seemed to be permitted by the Bible. Now, what some Christians were coming to recognize in the mid-18th century is, first of all, there might be a dramatic difference between the sort of slavery discussed, especially in the Old Testament, and America's race-based chattel slavery. So maybe they're just two different entities, apples Mm -hmm. and oranges. I think more significantly, though, they were coming to think through the implications of the fact that we're all made in the Mago Dei, the image of God. And therefore, all humans should be treated with respect and dignity. And although it might be possible in some rare instances for a slave to be treated with respect and dignity, this is a very, very rare occurrence. And so therefore, we should oppose all slavery. It's an institution that, however, it might be permissible in some contexts, is fundamentally dehumanizing. And so therefore, we ought to oppose it today. The Quakers, of course, were leaders on this. But by the time you get to the American founding, the opposition is becoming widespread. I mentioned earlier Ben Franklin freed his slaves, became president of the Pennsylvania Manumission Society, a society dedicated to freeing all the slaves in Pennsylvania. John Jay freed his slaves as governor of New York, signed a law putting slavery on the road to extinction, and became president of the New York Abolitionist Society. And so founders are coming to recognize this almost always for Christian reasons, almost always because of their understanding of what the Bible requires. Now, I concede in the book that it is the case that you had some Southerners who defended the institution of slavery and pointed yes. to the Bible. And I think we have to recognize that, that Christians have appealed to the Bible to uh, defend evil institutions and practices, be it slavery, racism, sexism. That exists. But what I'm trying to do in my book is tell what I think is a far more common story that throughout American history, Christians motivated by their Christian convictions 
have been a force, a dominant force for liberty and equality for all Americans. Two aspects about slavery. I have a group reading Dr. John Hanna's two-volume set on the church in the world and the church in America. They're excellent history books. I did not understand the invention of the cotton gin and how that actually increased the need for slaves and how that also increased the need to move the different Indian people groups out of the South because they wanted the land. And so this innovation by an African-American, no less, ends up ironically creating more slavery for more product for England, that the whole process in the South really was about cotton at that period. And I mean, again, if I was taught that as a boy in my growing up years, I didn't hear it or listen or pay attention, but I was struck with the idea of technology actually increasing the need for indentured people to work in fields because England wanted the cotton grown in the South. So there's a lot of moving parts on Southern landowners and, you know, as they joke about the war of Northern aggression and so forth, but it's certainly a blight on the country and on our story. But the aforementioned people you've mentioned is also Witherspoon. I mean, you know, from the UK, there were Christians who were working, you know, day and night to abolish this. And again, as you continue in the chapter, when you talk about colonization and the different ordinances, to give folks a little insight why that's important. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I actually learned this in writing the book. So in 1780, Thomas Jefferson penned what eventually became the Northwest Ordinance. And according to Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner, after 1800, there would never be slavery in the old Northwest. Now, that draft was eventually revised in what we now know as the Northwest Ordinance, which did Jefferson win better. Instead of saying, we'll wait till 1800, it said right away, immediately, there will never be slavery in what will become the states of Ohio and Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. Now, why would they possibly do that? Why would the Confederation Congress and the first federal Congress do this? Because they recognized that slavery was an evil institution, and we might not be able to abolish it everywhere all at once, but at least we can prevent the spread. This sort of debate came up in the Constitutional Convention, and really, you read through that, and you see everyone is critical of slavery. Everyone is convinced it's on its way out. And a number of these people, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, was the co-author of that state statute to bring slavery to a gradual end in the state of Connecticut. Sorry. Yeah, so these guys are just convinced. As you suggest, though, it's the invention of the cotton gen. I learned some details here. You can grow long staple cotton along the coastal regions, and you can separate the fiber from the seed fairly easily. Short staple cotton grows in the interior of the South, but that was never profitable because it was so difficult to separate the seed to fiber. Work with, yeah. The um, cotton gin allows you to do that easily. And although the cotton gin itself saves time, you need lots and lots of labor to clear the land, to plant the cotton, to harvest the cotton. And so basically the South became committed to slavery in a way it had never been committed before. By the time you get to the 1820s, then you have Southerners defending slavery as a positive good for the first time. And so we need to recognize that's a later phenomenon. Even in the 1820s, though, the American Colonization Society was surprisingly popular in the South. And so even then, you had Southerners who were worried about the institution of slavery. They didn't like it, but they didn't want to be surrounded by all these ex-slaves. And so their solution was to free the slaves and ship them back to Africa. However, I give the numbers, I don't remember them exactly. I think about 10,000 were sent back to Africa over the antebellum period, roughly, let's say, 1815 to 1860. 
During that period, the number of enslaved Americans grew by like 600,000. And so colonization just was never a solution to the problem of slavery. In your fourth chapter, you talk about evangelical reformers in the antebellum America. Give us a little insight on, because we think of the antebellum as these beautiful estates and the big you know, Spanish moss trees and massive landowners, and we associate that with slave owners. No, that's right. That's exactly right. The antebellum America is an interesting place, and it kind of reverses what we think of as America's religious demographics today. So evangelicalism was dominant in New England and the mid-Atlantic states and out into the Midwest. The South wasn't really all that evangelical in, in antebellum America. It began moving in that direction in the 1850s. So these evangelicals up north were convinced that the kingdom of God was advancing and more and more people will become Christians. And as more and more people become Christian, society will be reformed. And so they wanted to be actively involved in this. So they founded all sorts of benevolent societies, societies to take care of orphans, to um, feed the hungry, to reform prisons, to reduce alcohol consumption, and the abolitionists were among them. So these are people, usually in the Midwest or New England, who recognized that slavery was an evil. Slavery had already been eliminated or was close to being eliminated in those regions. And so they started agitating for certainly the stopping the spread of slavery into new territories and states, but also abolishing it in the South. So these are the abolitionists, again, almost solely, almost to a person motivated by their faith to fight what they saw as mm-hmm. grave injustice. You spend a good section on the origins of separation of church and state. And this, in my estimation, is probably one of the most misunderstood and hotly contested issues today. And I dare say most Christians have no idea what it means. So Dr. Hall, teach us what we need to know about what Jefferson had in mind, what actually was implemented, and where we are today understanding the separation of church and state. Yeah, I've come to really dislike the phrase separation of church and state because it can mean so many different things. It could mean what what I would like to think all Christians would readily accept, the idea that the church and the state are separate institutions and the church ought not to be the state and the state ought not to be the church. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Okay, if that's what we mean, fine. Unfortunately, in 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, that this requires a strict separation of church and state, that it builds a wall of separation between church and state. And because of this wall, we can't have things like religious accommodations that protect pacifists. We can't have religious monuments like the Blandensburg Cross on public land. We can't permit tax dollars to go to Christian schools or other religious schools on the same terms they go to other private schools. And so this is what a lot of contemporary separationists mean by the separation of church and state. In my last book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? I'd like to think I utterly demolished the idea that America's founders wanted anything like that sort of separation. Even Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who wanted a higher degree of separation than most Americans, didn't embrace this sort of high wall of separation between church and state. And mm-hmm. I give a lot of good examples with respect to those two, to say nothing of Congress and state legislatures and that sort of thing. So this book addresses an interesting question. Okay, if no one in the founding era understood the Establishment Clause to mean that sort of separation, where did it come from? And what I argue is that it really came about because of the profound anti-Catholic animus that characterized America from 1850 to 1950 or 1960 or so. 
So you have very few Catholics in the American founding, about 2% of the population, but you have great ways of Catholic immigration throughout the 19th century. And also in the 19th century, you begin to get public schools as we would think of them today. Within these public schools, you would routinely have the Protestant version of the Bible, the King James Version would be read, and teachers would lead students in prayer. The Roman Catholics said, hey, um, these are very Protestant practices, and we don't want our kids to go to Protestant schools. Please give us our share of the tax revenue, and we'll have our own schools, right? We'll have our Catholic schools. And the Protestants who controlled you know, most cities, most states, and that sort of thing, they said, no, we can't do that. We can't fund sectarian schools. You have to go to public schools, which are, in effect, Protestant schools, right? The great state of Oregon in 1922 banned, it went so far as to ban all private schools. Now, that sounds pretty neutral, right? Until you look and see that every single private school, with one exception in the state, is a Roman Catholic school. And so this argument for separation really came about because of this profound anti-Catholic animus. There's an amendment proposed to the U.S. Constitution that would prohibit states from providing any money to any religious entity. You have constitutional amendments in many of the states. The big amendment was called the Blaine Amendment. The state amendments are called Baby Blaine Amendments, and these have been litigated, and the U.S. Supreme Court just sort of resolved them just a couple years ago. Let me just um, end this little rant with my favorite little antidote. We now know today of an organization known as Americans United for Separation of Church and State. This organization was founded in 1948 as Protestants and other Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Pure wow. anti-Catholic animus. No principled commitment to the separation of church and state. It's just a way of getting at those Catholics. I wanted to read the Blaine Amendment, as you have in your book. No state shall make any law respecting any and establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And no money raised by taxation in any state for the support of public schools or derived from any public fund thereof, nor any public lands devoted thereto shall ever be under the control of any religious sect, nor shall any money so raised or land so devoted be divided between the religious sects or denominations. You know, it's striking here in Tennessee, Dr. Hall, we're, we have a very pro-charter school, pro-voucher, if you will, governor, and he has set down a path. He wants 54 charter schools in the state of Tennessee. And as you probably know, in many states, once you get the infrastructure, the building, et cetera, then that Per student number, I think in Tennessee it's under ten thousand dollars a student. In New York, it's what close to ninety six thousand dollars per student. But that tax revenue then would go to that school. So you're not increasing taxes. You're not taking money away from anybody. But there's this perception that these charter schools are, you know, they're privileged or whatever. In fact, they're a lottery. It's just you know whoever applies gets in basically. And it's interesting to see how that amendment. The tentacles continue till today about this debate. That's right. Fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court just about two years ago said that this Blaine Amendment in Montana, in this case, was unconstitutional. Basically, it said, look, Montana, you don't have to fund private schools at all. But if you do, you can't discriminate against religious schools. You can't say we're only funding right. Protestant schools and you can't say we're only funding Christian schools. You have to fund all private schools equally. Maine actually tried to do something similar to this to say, well, we'll fund all private schools except for pervasively sectarian schools. And fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that, Maine. 
You don't have to fund any private schools, but if you do, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. I love these school voucher programs. I think they will particularly yeah. help the lowest income Americans, right? Americans who are trapped in well, places yeah. like New York City, where the Roman Catholic Church is able to run Catholic schools at a fraction of the cost of public schools, yes. and they do a whole lot better. And everyone in New York City would be better off if New York were to adopt a robust voucher program that allows children of poor single mothers to do exactly what Barack Obama yep. did with his children, send them to a private school. You know, and the Hillsdale, is it the uh, is it Bradley, the Bradley Charter School they have? I forget the name, but their model is extraordinary. And they opened, I think I saw one in Lewiston or Lewisburg, uh, Texas, and the waiting list was incredible. And again, it was just, basically, it was first come, first serve. It wasn't based, and it's a for that part of Texas, it's not a white school. It's got a pretty good demographic of Hispanic, African-American, other nationalities. And the education those kids are getting compared to the teachers' unions and the bureaucracies and all the infighting is like, I thought we were here to teach kids how to think critically and grow in skills of life, not indoctrinate them into any, whether it's even religion, right? We're not trying to indoctrinate but we're trying to help them to think critically about what they believe and why they believe it. So anyway, common sense doesn't always prevail. Let me, in our time remaining, let me ask you, because I would go through each one of these chapters. When you think about this, I know it's unfair question, but what do you think is one of the more important parts of your book that you wish people would understand? So um, this will be a plug for the whole book. I think it's important to have an accurate account of one's country's history. And this would be true if we were Englishmen, I'd say we need to understand English history. We're Americans, and I think Americans need to understand American history. And so one of the things I try to do is just get history right, and that's important in and of itself. One of the things I do hope to highlight is ways in which Christians have been very active in the public square, fighting for liberty, equality, and justice for all. And I think, I'm hoping this is inspirational and that we'll continue doing so today. We shouldn't pretend that racism has been solved in America. We still have to contend with the scourge of abortion throughout the land. We have to address children in failed schools. Christians need to be in the public square advocating for everyone, protecting the least of these, helping out the poor, the weak, the dispossessed. Sometimes this is best done without politics, right? Through forming private schools, voluntary societies, or that sort of thing. But sometimes, as we were just chatting about with respect to charter schools or school vouchers, it really does take some cooperation with the state. And so Christians should be involved in politics. I get tired of politics. I'm a political science professor, and I get tired of it just like everyone else. But we have a duty. We have an obligation, I think, to be involved in the public square as Christians. There has to be a mindset, and I often tell folks, you know, not everyone's going to do this, but there has to be a mindset that if you are a a policy-oriented thinker, if you're a clear thinker, if you're non-emotional and you can talk about facts, that school boards and city councils need men and women who are clear-headed, who are even-keeled, because if they don't do it, we're seeing something in Franklin, Tennessee, that we have a downtown area, much like you know Wheaton and Downers Grove, these beautiful areas. Our little Franklin has got this most wonderful downtown area. The LGBTQ groups are, I think it's fair to say, targeting that area. And they're doing certain events and activities and, you know, transgender uh, fairs and, you know, the cross-dressers reading books and stuff. And you think, Williamson County, Tennessee? And you go, yeah, 
because there's tenacity. There's men and women who want these things, trans people that want these things, however you want to you know, identify. And it's so interesting to watch Tennessee. But if who was it said all that's required for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing or something. That's right. Yeah. But it's frightening. Now, your love for history is like mine. Of course, you're the history professor, not me. And this is, as I've gotten older, Dr. Hall, this has been probably the most disconcerting thing is to watch how history has been not just revisionist, but removed from curriculum. And that's where I go to the charter school and the vouchers and the tutorials is something I didn't mention. Tutorial programs are phenomenal here in Middle Tennessee for people that can't afford the private educations. I mean, had I known about that earlier, I probably would have had my two younger kids in tutorials the whole time because you get such a great education up close and personal, smaller schools, no bureaucracies, you know, there's no downside really. They're done sooner. Homework's more reasonable. You know, I mean it's just it's a very streamlined system. But that being said, your assessment as you look at the country, are we just derelict in understanding our history? Oh, I think absolutely we are. I think, as you pointed out somewhat flippantly but accurately, history really isn't a priority in our public schools. I think the private schools do better at that. The charter schools do much better. But, you know, that's what maybe no more than 10% of the American population is able to be educated in that way. And so things like vouchers, where you um, enable parents to choose which school their child will attend. I remain optimistic that most parents would say, I want my child to go to a school where he or she actually learned science and math and reading and writing and history. And that will be a lot better. And I want him to go to a school where he doesn't read the 1619 Project as history, but still read, and instead reads Bill McClay's Land of Hope, or a sensible book along those natures. So I, I think structural reforms are necessary, and thank goodness they're going on where they are going on. Some parents can't homeschool their children. They don't have access to a good private school. And so I think it's incumbent upon them to read good books and you know, try to teach some of these lessons, impart some of these lessons at home, tell them about the heroes of the faith in America and elsewhere, where Christians have, you know, worked hard on behalf of others, right? It's one thing to work hard on their own behalf. I want to protect religious liberty so Christians have the ability to worship God and act according to their religious convictions. But I think it's also important to protect the principle of religious liberty. And so that's one of the reasons I dedicate this book to five different religious liberty advocacy groups, all of which routinely yeah. advocate for Jews and Muslims and Sikhs and others because they're committed to the principle of religious liberty. And this is, I think we should all take this sort of principled approach, right? We're committed to the protection of innocent human life, regardless of race, regardless of the religion of parent. We're going to be out there fighting for life, fighting for religious liberty, combating racism, fighting for equality. Christians must be doing these things. You know, as those of us that are grandparents look at the landscape in the last two, three decades of our lifetime, Dr. Hall, it's been so disheartening. It's very common among my peer to talk about, I don't recognize my country anymore. I don't think there's a way back. You mentioned how you have political science training, but you hate politics. I think that's true for all of us. You have to be somewhat of a sanctified pugilist to want to be in politics. But you know, how do you encourage folks from, you know, sort of folding their mental arms and saying, nothing can be done, sky has fallen. And some of these sectors, I don't know that you can turn things back. And yet, we just let it happen? Do we just sit by as Christians and sort of pacifistic, you know, view of life and say that's what it's going to be, God's sovereign? 
here I think is where it's useful to have some sense of history. So if you look throughout, let's just focus on America for now, throughout American history, the strength of Christianity has waxed and waned. It has been stronger in some periods than others. In some periods, it seems to be reaching a low point, and then we have the first Great Awakening or the second Great Awakening. And so I think one of the main things we can do as Christians today is pray for revival, pray that men and women, boys and girls will turn to Jesus Christ, right? Put their faith in him and rely upon him for the forgiveness of sins. And if people do that, if more and more people do that, I can guarantee you there's going to be good societal consequences from that. I think a lot of good stuff's going on in the state. So I get pretty um, frustrated when I look to Washington, D.C., but when I see things going on in states like Tennessee and Florida and Texas, Alabama, you know, there's a lot of good things, enabling parents to find the sort of education they desire for their children, banning critical race theory you know, from public schools, which is a great idea. And it's a misconstrued idea. I, I've been involved pretty heavily down in the Florida Civics Initiative. Every place where it's appropriate to teach about race, race is taught about. The evils of slavery, the three-fifths compromise, the Southern defense of slavery, the bloody civil war fought over slavery. No one says you shouldn't teach about race in America, but we don't need to indoctrinate children. We don't need to try to convince all white children that they're guilty of racism. Some might be, right? But that shouldn't be the presumption, and that's why we need to challenge these sorts of theories. So I remain optimistic because our God is sovereign, and he will bring about his purposes. Well, on that note, I'm going to stop because I want to leave folks a little bit encouraged. <laughs> Because I'm not, at my core, Dr. Hall, I'm very depressed about the way it's going, but you're right, apart from the gospel, apart from life change, you know, I often tell our church and our friends, you know, we all have a sphere of influence, and uh, maybe I'm not going to be in a city council or run for a, some office, but I've got friends and neighbors who don't know Christ, whom I can love, whom I can be kind to, and I can talk about the things of God and at some point, you know, share the gospel with them. And I think that is the individual call of the believer, right? Make disciples of all nations. And that's our job, no matter how bad the culture may or may not be. Dr. Mark David Hall, his newest book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. You'll have all the information, as always, in the show notes. Pick up the book. It's a great book to gift to somebody. Graduating high school senior, perhaps, or a graduating college student, this would be a great read for them. And something, a little uh, hint I've learned along the way, when you give a book to somebody, hopefully you've read it, but when you give it to it, kind of hold on to it and say, I want to get your opinion after you've read it. And just that little hook sometimes might provoke someone to, even if they just read a few chapters because they need to think beyond what they're being told in uh, Instagram and TikTok. And the only way to do that is to get their nose in a book a little bit. Dr. Mark David Hall, again, all the information in our show notes. Thanks so much again for coming on the podcast and look forward to the next time we're together. Thank you so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.